Well, good morning, St. John's. This is Jake Taxis with you this morning. I am coming to you via video, uh, live from the, not live, but from the Bayview neighborhood of Milwaukee, my home, um, preaching to you guys in that camera, somewhere out there in the world, in your pajamas, with your morning coffee, whatever you're doing. Thanks for joining us in, in worship this morning at St. John's. It's always good to be with you guys, even if it's in digital format. Um, so thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, our, our passage this morning is from Daniel chapter 6, and it's a longer passage, so I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So this is Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 23. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment, being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, 
been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. There's a great story I love about the Scottish Highlands. And the story suggests that there were a group of tourists in the Scottish Highlands looking for rare and beautiful specimens to take back to wherever they came from. Things like plants, maybe things like rocks. And they spotted this beautiful, rare plant positioned right in the side of a super high cliff. And they met together and they saw this beautiful plant and they determined, you know, there's really no way we can get to it from the bottom and there's really no way we can get to it from the top. But just that moment, they happened to see a, a shepherd and his young boy tending a flock of sheep. And so they approached the young boy with an idea and an offer. They asked the young boy if they could actually lower him down from the top of the cliff with a rope so that he could collect the plant for them. And then, of course, they would bring him back up. And the boy obviously was hesitant. He did not like this one bit. He did not think this was a good idea. Um, even as a young boy. And so they said, you know, we, we'll, we'll have a reward for you. We'll, you and your dad... We'll give you riches. And the boy thought for a minute and he said, you know, I'll do it on one condition. And the tourist said, well, well, what's that? And the boy said, I'll do it if my father holds the rope. I'll do it if my father holds the rope. The question for this boy is not so much how dangerous or difficult is the task. The question for the boy is, who's holding the rope? Who has my life in his hands? Right. For the prophet Daniel, the answer to that question is exceptionally clear. It's a very clear answer for Daniel. You remember in Daniel 5, chapter 23, Daniel says to Belshazzar, one of the kings at that time, he says to him, you did not honor, honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all, that your way, and all of your ways. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. See, the one holding his life is the God of Israel. The one holding Daniel's life is Yahweh, who says in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And I brought him out of Egypt. How can I give you up? See, that is at the core of who Daniel is. The prophet Daniel knows who is holding his life. But notice, it doesn't, it doesn't make his life any easier. In fact, you could, argue, you could argue that it makes his life a lot more difficult. When Darius announces this decree that no one is to pray to any god or any human being except for the king, 
you know, Daniel may have benefited physically and emotionally from doubting who was really holding his life. If he had any doubts about God holding his life and keeping him and securing his soul, he could have just stopped praying. It would have made life a lot easier for this Daniel. But the thing is, he does know. He does know the one who is holding his life. And that changes everything. It doesn't just change the way he faces nightmare circumstances, right? It faces, it changes the whole way he faces life. It changes the whole way he lives his life. There is no going back after he knows the one who is holding his life. See, Daniel knows and enjoys the one who is holding his life. So I'd like to suggest this today. And these are kind of my two main points. That Daniel's enjoyment of God benefits the world around him and it builds up the world within him. Daniel's enjoyment of God benefits the world around him and it builds up the world within him. And that same truth operates in the Christian life and even more so because of Jesus. So first, Daniel's enjoyment of God benefits the world around him. Take a look with me at, at Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, one of the passages that I just read. Uh, the author says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Now Daniel is the Giannis of administration. He is the MVP of civic engagement and organization. He is a pro at this stuff. He's exceptionally good at it. And people begin to notice. They begin to notice his skills so much so that he's about to get an enormous promotion. People start to get jealous. He's on pace to become the second in command, head over that whole region of the empire. The text says that he has exceptional qualities. And some older translations say he has a spirit of excellence, this Daniel. Is he just gifted? You know, does he just have natural talents that he uses? Partly yes, but partly these are gifts from God. You remember that in, in uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, God, it says that God gave Daniel knowledge and understanding of all kinds um, of literature and learning. So he has this, this beautiful knowledge given to him from God that he's actually putting into use. Along with that, he has the ability to understand visions and dreams. So this is a talented guy. He is the Giannis of administration, the MVP, as it were. But that doesn't really explain everything, does it? Because we all know talented people who fail to reach their own potential. Right? But Daniel is different. I would even say that Daniel is weird, gloriously weird, wonderfully weird, and the world benefits because of that. Now, what do I mean? Well, a few things. Few things are more boring than administration, but few things are more important than administration, than organizing people, than determining where the weaknesses are in an organization and, and using resources well to get work done. That is so important, and yet 
it's kind of boring sometimes. But Daniel is doing this kind of work. He has incredible gifts of literature, though. He has incredible gifts of understanding literature and learning. In, in many ways, he's a genius. So you could ask yourself, you know, why didn't he join the lecture circuit? <laughs> why, why didn't he give a TED talk and then write a best-selling book and line his pockets a little bit and build up his ego a little bit? Now, of course, he is uh, a political slave in some regards. He didn't have a lot of choice about the work he had did, but he is using his gifts he is using his gifts for the boring and yet absolutely essential work of administration. Public service. Those are where he's using his gifts and everyone benefits deeply in the whole kingdom. People that look like him and don't look like him. People who believe like him and people who don't believe like him. Everyone is benefiting. See, the meaning of Daniel's life is rooted in a relationship with God. It's rooted in a relationship with God. That means, that means that work can just be work. Work can just be work. It doesn't have to bear the weight of the meaning of life anymore. It doesn't have to bear the weight of, of holding our purpose and our value all in what we do. See, work was never designed to do that. It was never meant to do that. It can't handle that kind of weight. Only a relationship with God can handle that kind of weight, that kind of meaning that we need to sustain our lives and to really bless others. See, work becomes more meaningful. No matter what kind of work it is, it becomes more meaningful when it becomes the context for loving God and for loving people. That's when work becomes really meaningful rather than being the center of our own worth and value. As I said, work was never meant to do that. This is what it becomes for Daniel. It becomes a context for loving God and loving people. Whatever your work might be, teacher, construction worker, car salesman, farmer, grocery store clerk, sales associate, police officer, lawyer, janitor, pastor, anything. Whatever your work is, if you know the one who's holding your life, if you are enjoying his love and his delight in you, if you're delighting in the way he sees you because of what his son has done for you, if you're holding on with your core to, to who he is, then that's going to change your life, right? If you're relishing the freedom that comes from knowing that your life has deep and lasting meaning, then that is going to shine through your work. It's going to shine through your work like a flame shines through a Chinese lantern. It just glows. It's going to glow outward to the world, and the world around you will begin to benefit. That's what's happening with Daniel here. See, your work can reflect who you already are instead of your work telling you who you are, instead of your performance telling you who you are, instead of your boss telling you who you are. You're back in the driver's seat of your life when your meaning is placed in the one who has given up everything for you. And that's what happens for Daniel. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 4. It says, 
the other administrators could find no corruption in him. They could find no corruption in Daniel because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. See, he's honest, he's dedicated, he's careful. Everyone gets blessed by his enjoyment of God. The whole world around him gets blessed. See, these guys were jealous of his skills. And so they thought, you know, we're just going to do a deep vetting. We're going to dive deep into the background of this Daniel. And we, we know he's like us. We're going to find something that is really embarrassing and very dark. And we're going to bring it out for the world to see. But they could find nothing. Instead, they find incredibly that this Daniel is shockingly and weirdly good. He is a good man. He is a humble man. He is a man who is placing his meaning in God's hand. You see, God is holding on to his life, and it changes the way he lives life. And when these guys try to bring up dirt on him, they find nothing. They find a humble man who has submitted, him, submitted himself to a loving God. See, So they decide to go after his faith. They put his convictions in their crosshairs. So they convince the king to issue this crazy decree that anyone who prays to anybody or any other god except for King Darius is to be thrown into the den of lions. Now, the den of lions is really just a big hole in the ground. Right? So they're dropped through this hole to where these lions are. Now, Darius, the king here in this situation, he's a very interesting character. Notice that he's tugged and pulled in various ways. He's tugged and pulled in various ways. See, it doesn't take a lot of convincing for him to want people to worship him. Right? That's actually really easy for the administrators to do. They say, listen, people should be praying to you, king. You know, you, you're the king. You're the great one. They should be praying to you. And he doesn't need a lot of you know, real convincing. But another part of him, another part of him admires, and I would say even longs for, the kind of convictions that Daniel has. See, he is drawn to Daniel's convictions. There is something about Daniel's life that is glowing, and he is drawn to that life. Darius himself is absolutely rudderless. He's pulled back and forth between his desires, desire to be worshipped, desire to please his administrators. See, he's rudderless. He doesn't really have a direction for his life, but he has great power. Daniel has a clear, distinct direction for his life. And it changes the way he lives. changes the way he does his work. Darius is drawn to that kind of conviction. And I would say that the world, the world is drawn to good conviction. The world is interested in it. You think of Mother Teresa. Now, Mother Teresa had very strong Christian beliefs and principles that she did not compromise on. And even though the world may critique what she believed, you will not find the world critiquing the excellence of her life. Because those beliefs, that conviction of who God is in Teresa's life, that made her work and her life glow. And the world is drawn to that. The world is pulled in 
to that. The world is drawn to a confident identity. The world is, is drawn to disciplined practice. The world is drawn to humility, even if the world is trying to figure out what it believes itself. See, these are the things that draw the world in. This is what Darius was drawn into. Um, for Daniel, he admired Daniel. He longed to have some of the character that Daniel has. When I was studying at Regent College in Vancouver, BC, I met a lot of wonderful people, and some of them were quite strange <laughs> in a really wonderful way, in a really beautiful way. One of them I'll call Rick. Now, Rick was, was from the deep south of the United States, but he was living in Canada at the same time Greta and I were living in Canada because he had studied at the same seminary that, that I studied at. And Rick really knew what he believed. He was a Christian, but in a really different way. And this is, this is what I mean. He loved to go to open mic nights in downtown Vancouver, in these little, these little pubs in Vancouver. And he would sing worship, pieces of worship music. And one of them was the doxology. You know, um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, that one, he would sing that with this, with this deep southern accent, and it was sort of like this haunting piece of music. And and people who were in the pubs were just kind of drawn in by this. They were drawn into his character. Now, something you have to understand about about Vancouver, especially downtown Vancouver, is it's more European than it is American. So these Canadians, they have never seen anything like this before. They were drawn into this kind of character and this kind of life. Now, Rick would stay out late and he would, he would befriend people who were homeless, people who had addictions. He would, he would um, become friends with musicians and bartenders, people from very different cultural and very different faith backgrounds. And he would have these wonderful conversations with them. And he was always honest about what he believed. Always. He was honest about what he believed, and he always seemed to have new people at his house when I would stop by. He became, he became such good friends with, with a young man that he met, a young Muslim man, um, that this guy actually moved with him back to, back to the Deep South for a while, and he became a Christian. It wasn't so much Rick's words. It wasn't so much his, his arguments. See, it was, it was his conviction. It was his way of life. It was, I would even say it was his weirdness. He was gloriously and wonderfully weird. <laughs> Different than the world. And that drew the world in. And actually the world benefits from it. The world was benefiting from his enjoyment of God. He really didn't care what other people thought of him. He was simply enjoying God. And he was meeting people in the midst of that enjoyment, and that benefited them, that blessed them, that gave them a gift. He was gloriously weird, and that weirdness, that weirdness made people wonder what kind of God does this man believe in? Who is this person's God that he would be so open and, and so confident 
And then he would reach out the way he does to others. And then he would open his heart the way that he does to others. That he would live in a way that he is feeling like God is calling him to live. Who is the God of this guy, of this Rick? Because Daniel knows the love of God, because Daniel enjoys God, he looks weird to the world. I mean, especially at that time, it looks weird that Daniel doesn't have any dirt that anyone can bring up on him. He's an honest man. That's weird to the world. But Daniel knows there's a real father holding his life. There's a real father at the core of who he is. And the world around him begins to benefit from his enjoyment of God. Now, second, I want to move on to Daniel's enjoyment of God as it relates to his inner life. And I want to say Daniel's enjoyment, his enjoyment of God builds up the world within him. It actually builds up the world within him. The more he enjoys God, the greater capacity for enjoyment he has, the greater capacity for facing difficulties in this life that Daniel has. His inner world gets stronger and stronger by enjoying and being present and listening and praying to this God. I want to take a look at chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, Now when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. <clears throat> See, Daniel maintained his practice of thanking God every day, three times, and it fortified his joy. It fortified his joy against any threat. See, he could face anything. And, and remember that Daniel is not a young man at, his, at this point. He's in his 80s, probably his upper 80s. And so he has been living a life where he is regularly, every day, opening his own heart up to God, enjoying the love of this father. And that father is building him up building him up more and more and more. And it comes out in this confident, steady, calm, beautiful worship that nothing can throw off the tracks. Nothing can throw it off. Nothing at all. Even a sentence of death to the lions. I love what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He's preaching on this. And he says, notice that after Daniel hears the decree, um, he doesn't go back to his, to his home and say, well, that Darius, I don't care what he thinks. I'm going to spite him, and I'm just going to pray anyway. He doesn't do that. And on the other hand, he doesn't pray out of panic. He doesn't pray 300 times. He doesn't pray 3,000 times. <laughs> he prays three times, just like he had done before. Three times, his calm, steady, confident, trusting pattern of worship, of life-giving worship, continues as it always has. And, I, and David Martin Lloyd-Jones says at one point, he says, you know, if any one of us had heard this decree, we would have gone home, slammed our doors, fallen on our knees, and prayed, you know, a thousand prayers of disgust and anger, asking God, what the heck is going on? Or, Today, we might go on to Twitter and say, our religious freedoms are being threatened. You know, 
Notice Daniel. Not Daniel. He prays three times per day. And he continues, even in the midst of this, this terrible threat. His world within him is, even in the midst of this, is being built up to face anything. You know, I, I don't think I ever prayed more in my life than the day that I accidentally backed up my car, our car, into the wall of the uh, rental unit that Greg and I were staying in in Southern Oregon. And I basically collapsed the entire lower half of the wall. And I was absolutely panicked. I don't think I ever prayed more in my whole life. And I can say with a lot of regret that I think I probably had more trust in the insurance company in that moment than I did in the one who holds my life. Not Daniel. Not Daniel. Three times. See, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't get upset that we can't get upset or frustrated in prayer. I mean, the Psalms, the scriptures are full of lament. See, we are, we are meant to bring all of our hearts, everything that's in our hearts to God. It's all acceptable. And he will take it and he will heal it. Not at all. The question is the pattern of worship that we are setting day after day. See, Daniel knows the one who is holding the rope of his life. That's the one that he knows. That's the one that he meets with regularly. It's like, it's like gathering with your spouse for dinner every night. It's like meeting with, with your best friend for coffee every week, right? It's, it's maintaining those connections that give you life. A pattern of deep connecting with God, who is, who is the one who's holding your life. That's what Daniel has. That is what's building up his life, and that's actually what's benefiting the world. And it's giving him the power to face anything. Now, at the end of the story, we find Daniel alive and well in the midst of what some paintings will reveal as sleeping lions, content lions. You know, some of those great old-time paintings where the lion head is, is laying over Daniel. They're just sleeping peacefully, and Daniel's just hanging out in the den. I love that stuff. But you'll recall that the king is a nervous wreck all night. He doesn't, he doesn't watch Netflix. He doesn't order takeout. He doesn't do anything fun. He's just worrying about this Daniel because he's drawn to his character. He knows this man is good. He knows this man is special. And so he runs first thing in the morning to the den, to the lion's den, to see what has become of this Daniel, of this man who, whose own enjoyment of God benefits the world around him and, and builds up the world within him. He goes to see what has happened with this Daniel. Now, if this is true of Daniel, that he benefits the world around him and builds up the world within him, and I think it is, if that's true of Daniel, then it's even more true of the Christian because of Jesus. Now, what do I mean? I mean Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> and I know I look a little bit like Napoleon Dynamite, but get that out of your heads for a moment, okay? The film Napoleon Dynamite came out maybe 18 or 19 years ago or something like that. Now, on the surface, it looks like a meaningless film, but actually there are deep Christian themes in this, in this film. And one of them is, is this. If you've seen the film, you know that, that there's a, a, a young immigrant, a high school student um, named Pedro who moves to rural America and starts going to high school. And he befriends this, this uh, 
this very intriguing young man named uh, Napoleon Dynamite, who's a young high schooler himself, but he has the most interesting um, habits and interests in the world. I mean, he's, he's, he's just a strange young man. He's gloriously weird, right? So Pedro and Napoleon, they befriend one another. And Pedro decides to run for school president, and he's going up against the most popular girl in school, right? This is the most popular girl in school. And, and for her skit, um, because they're going to be voting for president, and they, they give a speech and they give a skit. And for her skit, she gives this beautifully choreographed musical piece and dance with her friends that rivals anything from Hamilton, right? It's like a high production, beautiful thing that she does. And she stuns the crowd, and they all applaud. And Pedro... Um, you know, he looks so defeated already when he's coming up to the podium. And he, he, he mumbles something. His speech is that he mumbles something about the improvements that he would like to see uh, at the school. And then in desperation, he says, if you vote for me, all your wildest dreams will come true. <laughs> and as if it couldn't get any worse, the principal announces that it's time for Pedro's skit after, after that. So he has to answer what the popular girl did. He has to come up with something, but he has nothing. So he basically gives up, gives up, and he walks off the stage totally defeated. And so the principal announces that, you know, now it's gonna be a skit from Pedro, but Pedro's nowhere to be found. But his friend, the man who had become his best friend, Napoleon Dynamite, walks out onto the stage alone in Pedro's place and the music starts. <laughs> Napoleon is sitting there looking at the audience and you're just thinking this is going to be an absolute disaster. But Napoleon Dynamite dances one of the most memorable dances in cinematic history. And if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. I suggest you search it, that last scene from Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon dances the most incredible dance in Pedro's place. See, this skit was meant to be performed by Pedro, but Pedro's nowhere to be found. He's missing in action. He's totally defeated. He's gone. His best friend steps into his place and dances a dance that blows the socks off the audience. And they stand up and they're shocked and they, and they applaud. And their applause is a great roar. And the most popular kids <laughs> who have just performed this great choreography piece are stunned. And they know they're defeated. They know that this Napoleon had done something amazing. See, he stepped, this Napoleon stepped into Pedro's place and he performed for him. He took Pedro's spot and he won the victory for Pedro. He walked on the stage alone and single-handedly won the victory for this man. Pedro was nowhere to be found. Pedro gets the credit for Napoleon's dance. Pedro's future is forever changed because of Napoleon's dance. This is what um, theologians will call imputed righteousness. <laughs> this is what Martin Luther went on and on and on about. This is what he hammered home again and again. And Luther's big thing was, 
It is the righteousness of God that we have been given through Jesus, that Jesus' own righteousness as the Son of the King now belongs to us. Jesus performs for us. Jesus takes our spot when we were missing an action. Jesus pays for the sins that we should have paid for. See, that is imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness that God gives to us. That is what, in a very you know, limited way, Napoleon does for his best friend. That's what Jesus does for his friends. It's not a dance, but it's a death on the cross that brings us life. It's not a stage, it's a cross. This is what this Jesus does. He takes our sin and he gives us his own status in God's family. And what's the status of Jesus? It's that of a cherished and beloved son. That is who Jesus Christ has made us. We are children of God because of him. Now in the Gospel of Luke, we see a man sprinting in excitement in the very wee early morning hours toward the tomb. And he's not a king like Darius. His name is Peter. And he's sprinting toward a tomb because he's gotten word that Jesus is not dead. That actually the one that he had been basing his life on, the one that he thought was holding his life, actually this one is alive. And so Peter is running to the tomb and he doesn't find content lions and, you know, a living Daniel. He finds empty grave clothes and he finds an open tomb, an open tomb. See, Daniel was spared from the lions because of God's grace. But Jesus Christ died in the jaws of the only real lions that can really defeat us, sin, death, and the devil. He died in those jaws to give us a grace that we can never lose. See, Jesus Christ is the real Daniel. He's the truer Daniel. Daniel is spared because of his innocence. But Jesus Christ offers up his innocence. He offers up his perfect life to place us firmly in the hands of the Father so that we can never, never lose his love. See, this Father is clinging onto our lives. He is holding our lives. He is keeping our lives forever because of what Jesus Christ has done. See, Jesus went into the den that was marked for us. He paid for our sins. And Daniel, Daniel knows that God is holding the rope of his life. And we as Christians know that Jesus Christ, because he went into the den that was marked out for us, we know that Jesus Christ has firmly placed us into God's family as his children. This Jesus has firmly placed us into God's hands so that God, Yahweh, is holding our lives. He is keeping and securing our lives forever. He is our true Daniel. He is our true Daniel. We are free because of this Jesus and what he has done for us so that our work can actually bless those around us. It can just be work. Even as our inner lives are being built up, the inner world within us is being built up so that we can face anything in the world. 
We are free because of what this Jesus has done. Praise be to the God of Daniel. Let's pray. Gracious God, I want to thank you for being the God that you are. I want to thank you that you are the one holding our lives in your care. And that because of you, our work can just be work. Our work doesn't have to hold the meaning for our lives. Instead, we know where our meaning comes from. That meaning comes from you. And Lord, our prayer and our worship and our, our lives of thanksgiving can be confident and secure and steady and calm. That we can come to you peacefully and with confidence because we know that you are working and that you have saved us. We haven't done anything to save ourselves. You are the one building up our inner life. Lord, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are the God of Daniel. I thank you that you are the Father of our Lord Jesus. And we are part of your family now. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for, for uh, joining me here again this morning. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you guys at St. John's.